Welcome back to the Spirits Guide Podcast. I am Rich, your guide through the intoxicating spirits world. I want to start out by thanking everybody out there who's been listening to the podcast. The numbers are growing week after week. Uh, I appreciate you guys so much for being part of this journey with me and to help grow this. So here we are. You know, you guys have been listening along, like I said, week after week. And you've probably been wondering, where's the bourbon? Where's the whiskey? Well, here it is. Maybe not the way we thought it was going to be, but here it is. So I want to give a little backstory on this episode before we get into it. This kind of came out of, you know, working in retail, getting to see it from that perspective, but also being a bourbon consumer as well. And then, you know, having some discussions lately with people about the state of bourbon, the landscape of bourbon. And so I decided, you know what, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to do a podcast about this. And I had a couple of drinks and I sat down and I hit record. And what came out of my mouth for the next hour and a half was the lunatic ramblings of an insane person. Uh, I had a lot of fun. And when I listened to it back, I thought, Jesus, that's a bit off the rails. So if you listen to this episode and you think like, God, he's off the rails. You can only imagine what the original version of this sounded like. It really was crazy. And But when I listened to it back, I thought, like, there's a lot of really good content. And, you know, when I, I did that initial recording, I didn't know if it was going to be an episode or if it was just something to kind of, you know, get it off my chest and, and get it out. There was a lot of good stuff, again, a lot of rambling. And, you know, maybe sometime in the future, I may release that recording just because it is kind of funny and it gets sidetracked and twisted and it, it's a lot of pretzel logic. But it was it was fun, but it did sort of provide me the basis for what I do here. And I know that I I kind of preach that these these episodes are unscripted and they're unedited, you know, and sometimes unprepared. It's not that the redo of this was a scripted version. It was just a little bit more concise perspective of what I wanted to present. And then what happened was I came up with so much content that it was kind of overwhelming. So I split it into two. Uh, This episode is the first half where I'm going to talk about you know, kind of the bourbon landscape, the state of it, and, you know, where we're at. And then I want to start to talk about some of the things in the bourbon landscape that scare me for the future. And then on next week's episode, we'll talk about sort of the my feelings on specialty releases and, you know, blog sites and publications and people telling you what to drink rather than going out and finding. But that's next week's episode. I hope you guys enjoy this. I really hope that it stimulates conversation. uh, And I mention it, it'll be in in next week's episode, but I do mention it in there of, if I'm wrong about anything, please comment on Facebook, comment on Instagram. Let me know like, hey, bro, you're way out of line in this. You're wrong. This is why you're wrong. I want to be wrong because I want to learn. And I really want to create a bigger discussion. So if you're out there and you're listening and you're like, hey, you get some good points, you're a little crazy, and you've got some bad points, let's sit down and have a roundtable discussion about this. And, you know, we can all learn from it and bring it all together. Really, that's all I want to do is just stimulate conversation, have a little bit of fun, and drink some good whiskey. So, again, I hope you guys enjoy this. And if you are enjoying this and you like what I'm doing here, let's grow this community. Let's let's you know, keep this journey going and and bring more people into it. So go to the podcast page, click the follow button, give it a five-star rating, and that helps to populate it when people are searching for podcasts like this. Follow on Instagram and Facebook is the Spirits Guide where you guys can leave comments, reviews, uh, see pictures of what I'm drinking, what I'm reading. Uh, You know, I post things that, you know, people I meet in the industry just everything that's going on with me in the intoxicating spirit world. Uh, if you want to reach out to me direct, 
thespiritguide89 at gmail.com. You know, if there's something I taste on the show where you're like, hey, that sounds interesting, I'll do everything I can within my power to get you a sample. If you've got something that you've come across and you're like, hey, I wonder what he thinks about it, you know, you can reach me there and we'll find a way to get the sample here. I'll, you know, do a, a review of it on the podcast. If you want to come join me, if you want to be part of a round table, if you've got other things that are intertwined with spirits in your world that you'd love to come talk to, to me about and share, uh, yeah, reach out to me through email. I'm always looking for cool people to talk to, you know, who have interesting perspectives on spirits. All right, guys, hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll talk to you soon. Cheers. When the fuck did bourbon become the drink of the elitist? In fact, when the fuck did it become something we don't even drink? When did it become something that we collect, like Pokemon cards to show and keep in our trophy cases, but never actually consume? Guys, I am wound up about this. You know, when I look around the bourbon landscape today, it makes me angry. It makes me frustrated. It makes me scared for the future of bourbon. It makes me disappointed and it makes me almost discouraged to even want to drink bourbon. And I said almost, and I know I sound a little crazy right now, you know, but I'm not actually giving up bourbon. Um, but I do kind of have some issues with where we are in the bourbon world right now. And I, I really want to preface this by saying I still love bourbon and I'm not knocking people who love bourbon as well, but I definitely want to lend some perspective to this crazy kind of landscape that we're in, you know, bourbon, which was something that was the drink of the poor man. And we loved it because it was available every day, all the time. And it was cheap and affordable has now become this status symbol, this elitist thing that you know, is all about specialty expensive releases that really the common man or common woman can't really get their hands on. So I want to kind of dive into this. And I guess we start by like, you know, why bourbon? Why is it what it is? You know, why do we even drink this stuff to begin with? And in full sort of defiance of the bourbon landscape, since we are the spirits guide, I say we, it's me um, and my friends who sometimes stop by that I consider fellow spirits guides, but it's me right now. So in defiance of this sort of status world that we're living in, my first bourbon of the night tonight is going to be Old Crow. You guys are out there going like, Old Crow? Did he just fucking say Old Crow? Yeah, he just said Old Crow. And I'm going to make it one better than that. I'm drinking Old Crow out of a plastic 1.75 liter bottle. Got an issue with it? Bring it. I'm always open for conversation. Now, I had read somewhere, you know, when we talk about why we drink bourbon as Americans, why we love this, what is the romance in the lore about America's distinctly unique native spirit sort of. Yeah, bourbon is by law and decree. It's the national drink of America. Uh, I believe it's a uniquely American product. But that's only sort of partly, maybe not even half true. The concept of bourbon being a unique, distinct American product is more rooted in taxation and a guy who just had so much bourbon on his hands that he had to find a way to get rid of it. But I really want to go back to the history of kind of bourbon in this country and a quick sort of cliff notes. When we think of bourbon as, you know, the native, unique, distinct American product, go back to when this country was settled. Now, as I'm kind of recording this. We're in the middle of St. Patrick's season. I'm wedged in between the St. Patrick's Day parade, St. Patrick's Day coming up. And it, it kind of shed some light on this of the people who came to settle this country. They were making whiskey in the style of whiskey that was being made in Scotland and in Ireland. 
And they weren't making whiskey out of corn there. They were making it out of barley. And they were pot-stilling it in small batches. Single malt was kind of the original style of whiskey. That's what they knew how to make, you know, back in the old country when they came to this country. So really the first style of whiskey that was American definitely wasn't made from corn. And by the way, big shout out to my friends at Virginia Distilling and my friends at St. George, the great people at Balcones and Stranahan's and Westland and Westward and so many other distilleries in this country that are making American single malt and are pretty much on the verge of having federal guidelines put in place to make that an official American category of whiskey as well. They're making great products. I'll swing back around to that at the end of this podcast about other American whiskeys that we should really look into. But yeah, when these settlers came to this country, they were making whiskey out of barley. Remember, this country was settled in the Northeast. And what did we have for grains up here in the Northeast? We had rye. It wasn't barley. We had an abundance of rye. So places like Maryland, Pennsylvania, New York, and even here in Massachusetts, they were making whiskey out of rye. So again, your sort of unique, distinct American whiskey wasn't even made with corn yet. Rye whiskey was kind of the whole way the whiskey landscape went. And then the whiskey tax moves in and we're forced to go down south and settle into Kentucky where we find corn that was brought north from Native American people down in the Mexico area because that's really where corn originates from. It's only then that we start making whiskey out of distilled corn. Now, why are we distilling corn? Well, let's look at it like this. We've got corn, grow it, we harvest it, we've got a ton of corn. So we feed our family with corn. We feed the animals on the farm with corn. We bundle up corn and we bring it to the neighboring farm, maybe for milk or for eggs. Uh, Maybe we bring it into town and we trade corn for flour or other commodities. After we're done doing all of that, there's still some corn left. And oh, hey, winter is coming. What are we going to do with this corn? It's going to spoil. So we start distilling it as a way to preserve our crop. That's really why we were making whiskey out of corn, because we didn't want it to go bad. Now, I don't know if any of you guys you know, have that grandmother who was canning things and pickling things when you were a kid. They weren't doing it because they loved it. They're doing it because they lived through the Depression era. They knew that every scrap of food counted. Nothing went to waste. Pickling things and canning things was a way to preserve them through the winter. Man, I remember my grandmother canning peaches, uh, uh, green beans she would pickle. I remember her pickling watermelon rinds and thinking that was the weirdest thing when I was a kid. But it really stemmed out of the fact that They were poor, they didn't get a lot, and they didn't let anything go to waste. Well, that's the same concept that really started us making whiskey out of corn, was that we had it, we didn't want it to go to waste, because those people probably survived a lot of hard times without food. Now, once you distilled that corn and you put it into barrels, you could trade that as a commodity all winter long. Now, granted, some people got a reputation for making better corn, and your, you know, your name became your reputation. And so much kind of comes out of that. Maybe you had a distillery and you would brand your name on the barrel head. That's actually where the term brand name comes from, was branding the barrel head when you sold that barrel of whiskey. All right, I got to take a break, catch a breather here and taste this old crow. Now, why old crow? I don't know. I love old crow. It's easy to drink, it's affordable, and it's reminiscent really of why so many of us fell in love with whiskey. And I've had this conversation with so many people lately. You know, most of us didn't start off drinking Pappy, Weller, Blanton's. So many of us, when we were younger, we were drinking Jack and Coke, Crown and Coke, Seven and Seven, you know, 
Old Crow and Coke. So whiskey and cola was kind of what a lot of us first tasted whiskey in. And I'm not going to lie. It's a delicious cocktail. I've not gotten so far away from my whiskey drinking roots that I, I have forgotten where it all started. And to this day, drinking something like Old Crow, if I'm out in the yard playing cornhole with friends on a nice summer afternoon, maybe it's a little warm, maybe it's a little hot. I'm not sucking down 110, 115 proof whiskeys. I like that 80 proof. It's got good whiskey flavor, but you can drink a whole ton of it. So on the nose, yeah, it's not going to jump out and punch you in the face. But whiskeys, I'll, I'll save my proof point argument for a little bit later in the podcast as well. Old Crow, by the way, if we're drinking bourbon to attach to our history of bourbon, the history of, of America, you can't talk about the history of bourbon without talking about Old Crow and Dr. James Crow. Now, Old Crow is a brand that's been around since the 1830s. And I'm sure that there are other distillers who were using what's known as the sour mash technique to make their bourbons. But Dr. James Crow was really the first one to document it. He's given credit with inventing it. I'm not going to say he did. There's no sort of proof, but he is kind of the first one to really write it down. And what sour mash is, is when you make a batch of bourbon, you take all that spent grain, what's left over from the liquid, and you take all the solids and you put that into the next sort of batch of whiskey. What that does is it helps start the fermentation and it basically keeps a consistent flavor profile from batch to batch, much like if you're making sourdough bread. So really, bourbon wouldn't be what it is today without that sour mash technique. Now, I know there's a few distilleries. Peerless is the one that comes to mind that promotes that they use a sweet mash and they start fresh every time. It's not really economical, which is why Peerless is probably a little bit more expensive. Um, so this is the way that allowed us to continually make bourbon, especially in that pot still, that sort of sour mash process was huge. So in 1855 is when that sour mash process is credited with being invented. Although, like I said, he's probably using it before that. And that's just when it's documented. It was owned by a couple of different people, W.A. Gaines, and then it became a product of National Distillers. Jim Beam bought National Distillers in 1987. And now Old Crow is made by Jim Beam. It is owned by Jim Beam. Uh, later on, we'll talk about the fact of like Pappy coming out of Buffalo Trace. Pappy is not a Buffalo Trace brand. Pappy hires Buffalo Trace to distill it and age it for him. So it's kind of a contract distilled thing. Buffalo Trace actually owns Weller. So that's a Buffalo Trace brand. Jim uh, Old Crow is an actual Jim Beam brand. It's made by Jim Beam. It uses the same mash bill as Jim Beam. 75 corn, 13 rye, 12% malted barley. It's aged for three years. So it's younger, softer, lighter, but great, great bourbon flavor. You know, Old Crow as a brand was once the number one selling bourbon in America. So much so that, you know, it pops up in Hunter S. Thompson books. It pops up in Spencer for Hire books, which, you know, if you like old detective novels, Robert Parker, who used to be a Boston cop, wrote this whole series of Spencer for novels, later turned into a TV series called Spencer for Hire. So it does pop up in some pop culture. It was, you know, a favorite bourbon of presidents going back to Grant. So it has some historical significance. So again, if we're drinking bourbon to tie into our history, no knock against Old Crow. So again, we go back to the sort of run of how did we get from there to here? Bourbon starts to be made in Kentucky. Nobody really knows why Bourbon County got the name Bourbon County. But one of the things that could kind of count towards that, I guess, you know, Kentucky is located near the river. The river runs down into New Orleans eventually. 
kind of hooks up with the Mississippi, uh, where it ends up on Bourbon Street in Louisiana. Bourbon Street, a lot of French population in New Orleans, hence the Bourbon Street, which is named after the royal family of Bourbon back in France. They probably tie that in. You know, there's reports of people would go like, hey, we want some of that whiskey from bourbon because the barrels were probably marked bourbon from Bourbon Street in New Orleans when they were shipped for export. So now we're we're kind of coming into, you know, the early 1900s. We're making whiskey, prohibition hits, whiskey shuts down. So what happens is there's a woman whose family owns a distillery and it's the Waterfill and Fraser Distillery. Her name was Mary Dowling. She just packs up and goes to Mexico and starts making bourbon in Mexico. Nobody cared, whatever. Call it bourbon. Doesn't matter where it's made. You know, coming out of Prohibition, they're making bourbon in Canada. They're making it in France. They're making bourbon all over the world. Now, we hit World War II, and the government decides to shut down all the distilleries in this country and convert them, or if they're going to open, they have to make commercial-grade alcohol for the war effort, for fuel and for whatever you know alcohol is needed for. Now we fast forward to the Korean War. And what happens during the Korean War is there's a guy named Louis Rosenstiel. He owns Shenley Distillers, and he's going, shit, World War II... We shut down all the distilleries. Now there was a bourbon shortage. He's looking at the Korean War. He's staring down the barrel of that gun, and he's going, well, we better ramp up production because if we get shut down, I want to be the guy having all the bourbon stock when they shut down all the other distilleries. Well, guess what happens? Korean War ends. Distilleries never get shut down, and this guy has a ton of bourbon in barrels, aging in rickhouses all over the place. Now, people don't realize this, but a lot of the federal taxes that are collected are collected on alcohol. Go back to prohibition. The whole reason we have the federal income tax is because liquor tax is really what funded the government, and they had to put the income tax in place when they shut down all the distilleries to replace sort of the tax revenue that they were going to lose from alcohol, and they just stuck it to us as the American people. So now this guy's got a whole bunch of whiskey sitting in Rick houses, paying taxes on it. It's getting older. It's costing him money. He's got to figure out a way to make this whiskey special. So he lobbies the U.S. government to make bourbon an official U.S. product, a distinct American product, which the government does in 1964. In May, they passed this law. It makes bourbon the distinct American product that it is. And now you can't make bourbon in France. You can't make bourbon in Canada. You can't make bourbon in Ireland or in Mexico. So if you want bourbon, you have to buy it from America, much like champagne does, much like tequila has done now. You can only make tequila in Mexico. You can only make cognac in cognac, France. You can only make champagne in champagne, France. You can only make port in Portugal. It becomes these distinct national products. And that's a way for him to unload all of his, you know, precious stocks of bourbon overseas for a premium price, which also kind of ties into another myth that older whiskey is better. The truth is, sometimes it is better, but not always. And the concept that older whiskey is better is another marketing ploy to kind of get the general public to believe that. There's something more to it than maybe it is. This starts pretty much in Scotland when, you know, during Prohibition, their biggest market, which was America, was no longer legally importing scotch. So now they've got stock building up and building up and building up. And then somebody came up with the brilliant marketing idea of, hey, this stuff's been here for 12 years. That makes it older. It's better. It makes it premium. And so they started to market the concept of 12-year-old Scotch whiskey, and it worked. People bought into it. Now, I'm not saying that older isn't better. Uh, in fact, I had a great conversation this week with a new friend of mine, Simon. If you guys follow me on Instagram, it's a picture of him and I drinking 
an amazing bottle of Red Breast 27 year. And we had this great conversation of, you know, in Ireland or in Scotland, you can age a whiskey for 27 years. You know why? Because it never gets above 70 degrees in Ireland or Scotland. It doesn't get that hot. So you don't lose whiskey to angel share. You can't age bourbon for 20 years or 27 years. Most of the time, you just have an empty barrel by the time you were done. And really, whiskeys made with a traditional or bourbons made with a traditional mash bill that includes rye, those whiskeys don't really age well kind of, you know, past 10 or 12 years, they start to get a little funky. They start to lose a little bit of their flair. So weeded whiskeys are the ones that really can age into that 20, 25 year mark, which is what Pappy Van Winkle figured out. That's the genius to what he had figured out about whiskey and why he made his whiskeys with wheat instead of rye. The other reason being Again, that there's no real rye in Kentucky. There was more wheat, and he wanted to make a whiskey that was closer to what Kentucky really represented. So, you know, older, maybe in in Scotland and Ireland, can be a little bit better. You get some developed flavors, and you don't get as many wood notes. Again, I tasted a 27-year-old Irish pot still whiskey. That was mind-blowingly good, but the color was lighter than the Evan Williams four-year bottled and bond that is sitting right in front of me. The wood notes were almost not there at all. The barrel finishes, it was finished in port barrels. I got some of the port finish. You know, I got some of the sherry notes that it was in, but there was no harsh oak. So, you know, when you're talking about older bourbons, that's really not the way it was meant to be. And some people like that flavor profile, and that's great. But it's not just because it's good doesn't mean it was originally supposed to be that way. We kind of stumbled upon some things. And even the concept of aged bourbon in this country, again, and we'll talk about this when I get into sort of my road warriors and and the horses that were pulling the cart. But for the longest time in this country, Nobody wanted bourbon. Nobody cared about bourbon. It was largely ignored. And what happened was there were stocks that were building up for 10, 12, 13, 15, 18 years. Well, you know, 10, 15 years ago when that bourbon boom turned around, all of a sudden everybody had old stock that they wanted to flush out. And people started buying it up and enjoying it. But that's not where we started, you know, as just the average working class person, cowboys, we were drinking younger whiskeys that that had a bite. And I feel like, and I'll, I'll tear into this more, but like, I feel like as whiskey has grown in popularity, and I, I feel like bourbon kind of grew because the price of scotch started to go way up, bourbon became the more affordable alternative. People kind of drove back to that. Also, it's got a bolder flavor, and that I'll talk about in my sort of fears of the future of bourbon. And people started to switch over to bourbon. All of a sudden, it starts to become really, really popular. And then what, you know, people do is when they find out something's popular, you know, the poor people are drinking it, the working class people are drinking it, and then the people with money go like, I want a slice of that. I want to control that. And now... People are making whiskey just to cater to that. <laughs> I, I think one of the the signs of how it's really become elitist in in a certain way is uh, if anybody watches the TV show Billions in the first four or five seasons that had the character of Bobby Axelrod on there, in almost every single episode of the show Billions, where the main character or one of them is a billionaire, in almost every episode. A bottle of Michter's 10 appears like a bottle of old granddad would appear in any movie about, you know, people who work at the bus station or, you know, plumbers or, or you know, people who are hanging out in a VFW. Any sort of working class people would be drinking things like old granddad or wild turkey or Jim Beam in a show like Billions. Their daily drink is Michter's 10. And any of my friends out there who like bourbon or whiskey hunters or are always looking for something good know that 
you know, as a retailer myself, I see maybe if I'm lucky, three bottles of Michter's 10. And in a show about billionaires, it's their daily drinker. Um, if that is not indicative of the status level that bourbon has now attained, um, I don't know what is. All right, I'm going to take a quick breather. And when I come back, we're going to talk about some of the things that scare me about the future of bourbon. I want to talk about the workhorses and give some just due to some of these great bourbons that were carrying the load when nobody out there cared. And then I want to talk about drinking things that you find interesting, not what other people tell you is interesting. Be back in a minute. All right, we're back, Spirits Guide. And for this segment, the whiskey that I am drinking, Wild Turkey 81. Now, this is going to start my sort of anger theme, I guess, for anybody who is like, oh, Wild Turkey 81, Ugh, bottom shelfer. I, again, when we talk about the history of bourbon, the attachment to our past, the romanticism, the glory of bourbon. Let's talk about the truth. There was a time in the 1980s and in the 1990s where nobody out there gave a shit about bourbon. I was just starting to bartend. You know, when you walked into a store at that point in time, you know, you're looking at Wild Turkey. You're looking at Jim Beam. You're looking at Old Granddad. You might have been looking at Old Forester, but even by Brown Foreman's own admission, they paid more attention to Jack Daniels. So even Old Forester, which is a crime that it doesn't get more attention. Uh, it is these days, but it took a long time for a lot of people to get there on the Old Forester bandwagon. You know, you had Evan Williams. You had Old Crow. These are the brands that when bourbon was in a downturn, when nobody cared, these are the brands that were pulling the cart. Bourbon was a sinking ship. Nobody in this country cared. They were all drinking vodka. I know I was behind the bar serving people. They were drinking vodka. They were drinking what we called the sugar bomb cocktails. They couldn't handle whiskey. So I, I just feel like from a respect for the fact that these were the brands and these were the distilleries that kept this thing alive, you know, uh, Four Roses. I'm not sure when they switched back to being a bourbon, but really Four Roses for the longest time wasn't even a bourbon. It was a light whiskey. Uh, they were making some bourbon. You know, Jim Rutledge was, man... There was a hole in that boat, and he was just trying to scoop out the water with the smallest bucket he had. And he, you know, fought Seagram's to, to get them to make bourbon for America at Four Roses again. But for the longest time, the only bourbon coming out of Four Roses was going to Japan because they were the only people who cared about quality American whiskeys. You know, so for people to kind of look at these brands and go like, oh, they're so cheap that they can't be good. I'm trying not to F-bomb as much on this as I really want to. But my God, people, like just because something is, you know, more expensive. And by the way, it's created to be that way. Just because it's more expensive doesn't mean it's not good. And again, whiskey, bourbon for the working class person, the everyday drinker, the affordable. And you know what? These things taste great. Wild Turkey, by the way, is a, a brand and a distillery that has a heritage, you know, going back, you're talking 70 years, a uh, couple of family changes. And, and now we're at where we're at. It used to have an eight-year age statement, but because the demand went up, they couldn't keep the eight-year age statement on it. Uh, slightly higher rye content, lower barrel proof entry. And 
you know, we're not talking about Wild Turkey as a brand. I'll get into that sort of in the the special releases segment. But a lot of these brands that people look at and go like, oh, Wild Turkey is cheap. Wild Turkey is inexpensive. But for brands like Wild Turkey, Evan Williams, Four Roses, uh, you know, Old Granddad, Jim Beam. Yes, these are their entry level offerings and they're fantastic. But every single one of these makes a specialty release, quote unquote. They make allocated whiskeys. Um, these are just the base models. And again, I'm drinking the, the Turkey 81. Why? Because, well, I'm angry. I'm all wound up. And if I drink 100 proof whiskey, I'm going to get really, really nasty as this thing goes on. And again, some nights, you know, I talk about it with Corey. I, I talk about it with some of you guys out there. There are nights when we are tasting whiskey. There are nights when we are sipping whiskey. And then there are nights when we are drinking whiskey. And, you know, not just the out playing cornhole in the hot sun or, you know, tailgating at a concert or, you know, whatever. Like that 80 proof whiskey that provides you great flavor allows you to be able to drink more. Try sipping on a couple of barrel proofs on a, you know, 95, 110 degree day with really high humidity. See what kind of headache you have. See how dehydrated you get. See how fast you get drunk and then belligerent. And then, you know, when you want to have conversations with your friends, you're ridiculous and tripping over things. So 80 proof allows you to just drink more, enjoy the flavor. And for those times when we're drinking, again, I'm not knocking. I promise you guys and you guys who know me know, you know, I love my barrel proof offerings. I love high proof points for sipping, but there's a, a, a whiskey for every time and place and occasion. And sometimes you just want to drink and and have a few. And that's where that 80 proof comes in. Again, wild turkey. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm rambling and I kind of go in all different directions. Yeah. Wild turkey. Great. Um, like I said, good rye content. The base model comes in an 81 and a 101. And this is one of those drinks too where... You know, I feel like sometimes the younger generation goes like, oh, wild turkey. That's what my grandfather drank. Yeah, because it was good and also because it was available and affordable. Um, but there's a reason that these brands have survived for as long as they have. People knock Jim Beam. Oh, Jim Beam White Label. It's cheap. Well, there's a reason it's the number one selling bourbon, not in America, in the world. Jim Beam is the number one selling bourbon in the world. The number two bourbon in the world, Evan Williams. So there's a reason, you know, we look at it and we go like, oh, wow, it's cheap. It's on the bottom shelf. It can't be good. Not true at all. Let's talk some quick economics of the whiskey business. Brands like Evan Williams, which are made at Heaven Hill, uh, that family has owned that distillery I would say 70 years at this point, at least since the 50s, if not earlier than that. So you're talking, yeah, 70 years. Wild Turkey is a brand. It's been around, I mean, in one form or another, it's been around since pre-prohibition, but at least since the 50s. So you're talking 70 years. Uh, Old Granddad is a brand has been around forever, and they're now made at Jim Beam. Um, Old Forester has been around and making whiskey and producing not only commercial grade whiskey, but drinking bourbon uh, pre-prohibition, during prohibition and post-prohibition. The only ones to do that, the only ones owned by the same family for all of that time. You're talking about going all the way back to 1870. So you're talking 150 years that Old Forester has been in business. So let's talk economics. Why is Evan Williams so cheap? One, because the Shapiro family at Heaven Hill has a very strong belief that they just want to make good whiskey that people can afford and drink every day. And hey, what a novel idea. If we make it good and we make it affordable, we'll actually sell more of it. I, I don't even want to try to figure out the math of how much 
how many bottles of Evan Williams are sold in a year compared to how many bottles of Kentucky Owl are sold every year? We already know that Evan Williams is the number two bourbon in the world, but I would love to see the number of bottles of Evan Williams sold as opposed to Blanton's, as opposed to E.H. Taylor. From an economic standpoint, it's a lot of fast nickels as opposed to a lot of really slow quarters, I guess. I, I don't know. So, you know, they make good whiskey affordable for the masses. Same thing at Jim Beam. They could focus on more higher-end whiskeys, but they've learned from an economic standpoint, if we just make it good and we make it affordable, people will buy more of it. How novel. Wild Turkey, same thing. Uh, you know, Maker's Mark is another brand that was, you know, around, and that was your luxury brand. I kind of forget to mention that earlier. So you had your your sort of standard bourbon offerings, and then you had Maker's Mark, and that was your your luxury brand. By the way, one of the things that I absolutely love about Maker's Mark is, you know, you go to Old Forester and they make Cooper's Craft and they make Old Forester and they're owned by Brown Foreman and they might make some other more regional whiskeys there. Uh, you go to Heaven Hill and they're making a bunch of great whiskeys. They're making Evan Williams. They're making Elijah Craig. They're making Rittenhouse Rye. They're making pikesville rye they're making elijah craig rye they're making larceny a weeded bourbon um you go to buffalo trace and i know i knock buffalo trace a lot but like they make great whiskeys and so they're making buffalo trace and they're making eagle rare and they're making benchmark which is another one that people grossly overlook for the price point you know let alone that all the pappy whiskeys are made there the george stag whiskeys are made there uh, OFC, which is, you know, just the, you know, the rainbow unicorn, uh, that's out there. By the way, I just saw a six liter bottle of OFC online. Absolutely insane. I do like the fact that they're doing it for charity, uh, and not just to put into, you know, some distributor who's going to make me buy 5 million cases of fireball to get one bottle of it on my shelf. Yeah, I'm starting to ramble. I apologize, but stick with me. Uh, so what I love about Maker's Mark is out of all these big distilleries, they only make Maker's Mark. That's it. Um, you know, Maker's Mark is owned by Jim Beam, but they weren't created by Jim Beam. Uh, you know, Woodford Reserve is owned by Brown Foreman. It's kind of created by Brown Foreman. Jim Beam was its own thing that uh, I mean, Maker's Mark was its own thing that Jim Beam bought, but they still only make Jim Beam. They make, uh, I keep saying that, Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark only makes Maker's Mark. And they make multiple expressions of it, you know, the 46, the cask strength, the 101, um, the wood finish series, their manager selections, but it's all just Maker's Mark. And it's all the same juice, just manipulated certain ways. And I want to touch upon this when we get into like the specialty releases of why certain things cost more than others. Because really, you know, if Heaven Hill goes to their cooperage and says, this is the specs I want our whiskey barrels made. This is the toast. This is the char. This is, you know, what I want and how I want it made. When you buy one barrel, it costs a certain amount of money. When you buy 100 barrels, they all cost the same amount of money. You buy 10,000 barrels, they all cost the same amount of money. So the barrel that every drop of whiskey goes into at a distillery all costs the same. Now, we know for a fact, you know, Buffalo Trace has mash bill number one. So they might make a whole batch of mash bill number one. All costs the same. You know, you make a, a million gallons of it or whatever. So there's a million gallons of liquid that all costs the same. And then you put them all in the barrels that all cost the same. And then depending on where you put them in the warehouse, in the Rick house, they start to cost different amounts of money. Um, I get the quality changes, you know, like there are honey hole barrels and, and like this barrel tastes significantly better than the other one. But, at, you know, four years 
the field being level, they cost the same to make, but if you bottled them, one might be more expensive than the other. That's something that I don't fully, fully get. And while we're on the, the concept of making whiskey and brands and things that are available, my knock on Buffalo Trace is they keep preaching that we want Buffalo Trace to be our flagship brand. We want it to be our Four Roses. We want it to be our Jim Beam white label. We want it to be our Maker's Mark you know, standard offering. Then just make it available. Make it your standard offering. Stop making people jump through hoops to get it. I've been there. I've seen the warehouses. There's juice there. I don't know why it's not in the market place. All right. I got to breathe again. Again, on these, these sort of rants. Wild Turkey, 81. Nice, soft hints of oak. You know, it's not a big oak bomb, but the wood flavors are, are definitely on the nose. Mm. Sweet. A little spicy. Nice little burn, little toastiness there. Lingering flavor. That's fantastic. I don't need any more than that. You know, I can have two or three of these. And, and what's great is, I mean, this 81 is good enough to just pour in a glass, sip on while I'm watching TV or reading a book, especially if I'm reading a book, because then I can at least retain what it is that I'm reading. And when I wake up in the morning, I don't necessarily feel dehydrated or like a truck hit me because I'm drinking something that's at an appropriate proof point. So back to why are these things so inexpensive on the shelf? Like I said, they've been around for 70 years. A brand like Bullet has been around you know, despite their kind of bogus backstory that it's an old family recipe from 100 years ago. They've been around, what, 25, 30 years, maybe, as a brand, not as a distillery, which is another distinction that, you know, needs to be made, is there is a difference between brands and distilleries. There's a lot of distilleries, and there's a lot of brands. And truth be told, 85% of the brands in this country come from about 13 distilleries like i said buffalo trace makes you know a dozen different brands weller pappy blanton's eagle rare benchmark ancient age buffalo trace george stag sazerac all those brands are coming out of one distillery again which is what i like about maker's mark is it's all maker's mark and it's all coming out of maker's mark now there's a lot of brands out there that don't have a distillery and they do what's called sourcing whiskey which i have nothing against i don't care where the whiskey comes from how it gets in the bottle if it's good it's good i don't care about the price point if it's good it's good but the point is some of these brands that you see coming out they're not making their own whiskey so they're buying whiskey from somebody else you know something like a mictors which Again, has sort of a, a very murky, bogus connection to, you know, the late 1700s. They can kind of trace the lineage back, but it's not been in operation since the 1700s. So let's not kid ourselves. Um, so when they relaunched that brand, they had to get whiskey from somewhere. So whatever distillery they bought it from, whether it be Barton, whether it be Heaven Hill, whether it be Bardstown Bourbon Company, Ozzy Tyler, Wilderness Trail is making whiskey for other people, and obviously the big boy MGP in Indiana, people are buying these barrels, bringing them back to their facilities, or even doing it there, blending it together to create a signature flavor profile for their brand. What happens with a brand like Evan Williams is that's owned by Heaven Hill, it's made at Heaven Hill, by Heaven Hill, which means they're not buying their whiskey from somebody else. So when a brand like Bullet would go to Four Roses, they were paying Four Roses for their whiskey. So it's almost secondary market pricing. By the time it gets to the retail level, 
because you're buying barrels of somebody else's juice as opposed to just making your own juice. No knock on the quality, but it certainly affects the price. Also, when you start a new brand of bourbon, you have investors, you have partners, you know, you have shareholders who expect growth, who respect expect ROI, a return on their investment. Heaven Hill owns their property. They might have a banknote that they've got to pay, but they're not in debt in that kind of way. Obviously, they're taking lines of credit and they're making improvements and things like that, but they own their own stuff. They're not trying to repay investors who are in it for a short-term return. Wild Turkey is all paid for, and now they're owned by a parent company of Campari. So they have an influx of cash that they don't have to pay Campari back. Campari just owns them and lets them run as they will. Uh, you know, Old Granddad, which is owned by Jim Beam. So there's plenty of cash on hand where they don't need to come out of the gate with overpriced bottles. They can afford to put things out with a cost that's based on the cost of goods, not buying the goods and then having to resell them as their own brand name. Think of it if, you know, if you're a car dealer and you have a, a dealership, there's a difference between buying a car wholesale from Chevrolet as opposed to if you went to your local car dealer, bought it off the lot at the fully inflated price, and then had to bring it back to your lot to sell it so that you could make a profit. That's why these brands are so inexpensive. They're inexpensive, but by no means are these things cheap. Um, you know, Jim Rutledge, I had heard in an interview Oh, within the past year, talking about how if you're going to start a new brand, you need to come right out of the gate with a $100 bottling because you've got to recoup that money. I don't get it. You know, I mean, I do get it. You're buying somebody else's whiskey. You're trying to resell it. You've got investors. You're trying to recoup money. But you're also just trying to create this perception that you're better than another whiskey and you know, I've done plenty of blind tastings. You guys have seen me do it on, on video. You've come into my store and tasted them. That, you know, just because something costs more doesn't mean it's better. It just means that it costs more. That's it. Um, and the price is not always based on the quality. That being said, sometimes, yeah, you do get what you pay for, Um but talking about Jim Rutledge and, you know, his product, he's got a, a, a rye whiskey out called High Plains Rye, which is absolutely fantastic. But it's also a blend of five different ryes from four different states. So let's think, you know, and I know I'm a little naive to some of this info, but just functioning on a strictly intuitive, common sense thought process, if you're buying whiskey from New York in Kentucky, in Indiana, and I forget where the other state was. It might have been like Ohio. It was some kind of weird off-the-beaten-path state. And you're buying five different whiskeys. So you're buying from five different distilleries. You've then got to have those whiskeys shipped to you. Then you've got to blend them. Then you've got to bottle them. So it's no wonder that it's over 50 bucks on the shelf, which I still think is a really good price for all that sort of backstory that goes into it that being said quality wise if that whiskey was $42 I would think that's a great whiskey for $42 for $52 it should be $10 less um, because of the quality I get the prices based on what went into getting it in the bottle but the price is not based on the quality of the whiskey it's not based well yeah it's not based on the quality Mm. Wild Turkey is one of those bourbons that every time you drink it, and I go through this with all of these, you know, every time I drink Evan Williams Bottled in Bond, every time I drink Old Granddad, every time I drink Maker's Mark or Four Roses, you know, when I get kind of tired, this foreshadowing in that, uh, of those big, high-proof, bold, kick-you-in-the-teeth bourbons, 
and I just pour one of these, I just always think like, my God, why don't I drink more of this? This is so, so good. Um, and again, I, I'm all right. So I'm going to kind of close this segment with this. These are the whiskeys that were the workhorses. And yeah, there were some other brands and there was a lot of brands out there, you know, in the seventies, eighties, even the early nineties that were regional brands. Uh, one of my favorites rebel was a brand that was really focused in the South. Um, and there's a lot of brands that were like that. They were focused sort of in Kentucky or in Tennessee, and they weren't national brands that are now being brought to sort of the national stage. And I know right now, you know, the big thing with me is that people are, you know, they come into the store every day. Do you have any Weller? Do you have any Blanton's? You know, do you have any Pappy? Do you have any, you know, George T. Stag, it always seems like they're looking for the Buffalo Trace stuff. Here's the deal. Most of us who drink whiskey didn't start out drinking Blantons. And if we did, you've kind of screwed yourself over because you you miss the growth and the experience of actually drinking whiskey. I remember my my friend Dan kind of telling me one time, and he's a huge video game nut, that like, these kids shouldn't be playing, you know, Call of Duty or Final Fantasy right now unless they've gone back and played, you know, Zelda on Nintendo and played Mario Brothers. Like, you should have to work your way up to this level. Here's what I'm proposing, kind of half-jokingly, but half-seriously. You want Pappy? Here's what you've got to do. We're going to create a bourbon hold card or a bourbon punch card of some sort. And what you need to do is you need to drink and try Evan Williams Black Label, Evan Williams Small Batch, Evan Williams Bottled and Bond, Evan Williams Single Barrel. When you've done that, you need to go and drink Jim Beam and Jim Beam Black Label. Then you need to go and you need to drink Wild Turkey and then Wild Turkey 101. And then you need to drink Old Granddad. And then maybe Old Granddad Bottled and Bond, if you can find it right now. And then maybe maybe push yourself to the extreme and drink some old granddad 114. Then you need to bounce over to four roses and you need to drink four roses and you need to drink four roses, small batch. And then you need to drink four roses, single barrel. And then you need to kick it over to old forester and you need to drink old forester 86 and then step up to old forester hundred proof. Once you have gone through all of those bourbons, Maybe, just maybe, you're deserving of a chance to try a Pappy 12, a George T. Stag. But you should have to pay your dues because you know what? On the retail level, I've got to buy all kinds of crazy stuff and jump through all these crazy hoops just to get a bottle that somebody's going to take and then pretend like it's their kid's college fund or their cash out fund. And I'll talk about that more in the next segment when I start to really, really get angry. But the truth is, you should have to pay your dues and drink some real bourbon at the ground level and then work your way up to the so-called good stuff. And maybe, just maybe, you might get there and go, it's good. I'm glad I tried it. In fact, some of it is great. But maybe I don't need to spend $200 on a specialty bottle that I'm not even going to open. I'm just going to look at. You know what? I just want to drink some freaking whiskey. I'm going to go buy a bottle of Four Roses Yellow Label and enjoy my night. All right, I'm going to finish this glass of wild turkey, take a quick break, and then I'll be back to talk about what scares me to death about the future of the bourbon world. All right, so there it is, the first half of my state of bourbon rambling diatribe i don't know uh madness now if you've gotten through this first half and you're thinking like ah, i think he's crazy hey uh i think he's right i think he's wrong the point is you're thinking and that's the desired effect and again if it stimulates conversation then i did my job uh, and hopefully you know i hear from you guys and hopefully you're invested enough to hear the rest of this sort of 
rambling craziness <laughs> on next week's part two episode. Thank you guys so much for, uh, you know, taking time out of your day and, and sharing these things with me and being on this journey with me and listening. And I appreciate it more than I, I can ever say. So thank you guys very much. Uh, hope you enjoyed and we'll talk to you next week. Cheers. Yay.